Welcome to the Resurrection People podcast with Preston Sharp, pastor of Sacrament Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and curator of The Art of Preaching. Each week, we look at three readings from the Bible, drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. Find more at theartofpreaching.substack.com. Welcome back to the Resurrection People podcast. Today, we're still looking at the third Sunday of Advent. I know we've bled over into a new week here, but we're looking at the gospel reading for the third Sunday of Advent, and that is from John 1, 6, verses 6 through 8 and verses 19 through 28. And yes, again, we hear more this week about John the Baptist. <laughs> this is not what we often expect to hear at church in December. We are usually expecting stories about Mary, Joseph, angels, shepherds, but we don't quite get that yet. Today, we continue to hear about the scraggly prophet who is preparing the way for the Lord. Good luck finding John the Baptist on any Christmas cards or on Advent calendars. In John's gospel, John the Baptist is described as a witness to the light. John has already told us that this light is the life that, that was in Jesus. We see that in John 1.4. It shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Advent is good news, but it is good news which startles us awake. It is someone flipping the lights on in the middle of the night, and our eyes have not yet adjusted. What do we know about light? Well, light is a wave, a disturbance which moves outward. Think about what happens when you throw a rock in a body of water and you watch the ripples. That's what's happening with light. As a wave, light expands and radiates in all directions. It interferes with other waves. It bends around corners. Yes, light bends around corners. It just happens so quickly. It carries energy and momentum. It, it interacts with matter. And yet a light is electromagnetic, which means it does not need an additional medium to carry the wave. You do not even need an electric current to make magnetic fields. Electromagnetic waves don't need a medium because in a sense, they're their own medium. Okay, so light also enters our eyes in two different ways. The first is through a light source, like a light bulb that creates light. When this happens, the light travels to your eye and your brain interprets this signal as light. The second way is to see things by reflected light. If you're looking at an object, the light from somewhere reflects off the pencil or whatever it is, and then into your eye. Christ is our source of light, and we perceive that through the, quote, eye of our heart. But it doesn't stop there. The point of the Christian story is not just, I saw the light. It also means that everything around us looks different in light of Christ. The systems and structures of our world look different. Our neighbors look different. Leonardo da Vinci said, a painter should begin every canvas with a wash of black because all things in nature are dark except we're exposed by the light. In fact, in the Quaker tradition, there is a saying, when they pray for someone, they say that they are, quote, holding them into the light. The prayer is that everything in that person's life Every society, every structure would be realigned by the light of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the following from his prison cell. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. 
I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. This light comes in darkness. The coming triumph of God is made manifest precisely in the darkness of this present evil age. Darkness and the hope of light both stand side by side. So we can't jump over the darkness bit. And that is the whole reason why we must emphasize the difference between the Christian season of Advent and Christmas. Culturally, we tend to rush to Christmas, but we can so easily fall into sentimentality. One might say that to rush to Christmas is really just numbing pain, not healing it. Throughout the reading, John the Baptist is consistently pointing away from himself and to Jesus. In verses 6 through 8, he is the witness, the one who gives evidence about Jesus. In verses 19 through 28, he responds to questions about his identity. The main thing he wants to clear up, I am not the Messiah. (laughs) That's what he says. Now, I'm a big fan of the NBA, National Basketball Association, and lately when a player dominates a game when he takes over the new thing to say and the thing that these players say and they shout is I am him likewise when an analyst sees what the player is doing the analyst may say he is him it's a way of saying he's that guy or he's the man well many of the people at the time of Jesus were expecting a messiah a king from the house and line of David who would make things right, restoring Israel to her rightful place. And John makes it clear, I am not him. (laughs) Accepting his confession, priests and Levites ask him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? But here, John doesn't want anyone thinking that he is Elijah. Trying to grasp and to narrow down just exactly whom John might purport himself to be, the priests and the Levites ask him a more general question. Are you a prophet? Still, John deflects. He says he's merely a voice. John quotes Isaiah 40, which we read last week. And if we remember it from the larger context, it says that people are like grass which wither, but the word of God stands forever. There's a connection here with this voice or this word with John 1, 1 through 18, when Jesus himself is described as the word. John is but a voice. John the Baptist is a recurring figure in records from this time. It makes us think that he had gathered a following. He had disciples of his own. And yet, he pointed to Jesus. The author of this gospel may have wanted to make that point clear. John's role as a disciple is further sharpened by the fact that he very likely did not know that God's kingdom in Jesus would take the form that it would take. His messianic expectations were probably much like everyone else's a conquering king who would vindicate Israel by conquering her enemies. John's language about not being fit to untie Jesus' sandal is interesting. With 21st century eyes, we might simply think John is saying he's not fit to even do a menial task for Jesus, like helping him with his footwear. But there's another historical practice that stands in the background of this reference. Throughout the Old Testament, we find stories of the practice of of leveret marriage. When a man dies and his brother marries his wife in order to keep the family land and continue the family line. Remember, in the ancient world, this idea of a family line was extremely important. And we see this concept of a leveret marriage in Genesis 38 and then clearly in the book of Ruth when Boaz famously redeems Naomi's family by becoming their kinsman redeemer, by marrying Ruth. 
In the practice, however, the man's brother or kinsman may refuse to marry the the widow. He could choose to do that. And untying a sandal strap was the key moment in the halazah, the process that released a man and all of his brothers from marrying the widow. You can see this practice in Deuteronomy 25.9 and Ruth 4.7. So perhaps, as Gregory the Great argued, John was declaring himself not just beneath Christ, but unworthy to displace him as Israel's true husband. John is saying he's the best man, not the bridegroom. As John does this, he stands as a brother of Israel and a brother of humanity because none of us are able to do what Jesus is able to do. None of us can bring redemption. None of us is truly the bridegroom. Thanks for listening to the Resurrection People podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review to help us get the word out. You can hear full sermons at sacramentchurch.com and find out more at theartofpreaching.substack.com.